Go ahead, Wes. Say it. Say what? Say what? What say am I supposed it, to say? Say short song. Short song. Say short song. I didn't know. <laughs> it's a joke, see? Because when he when he drops the needle, he plays just the tail end of the song before it, and it was short. Ah. It's one of those jokes that's really funny the first time, and then just keeps getting funnier every time <laughs> after. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, amateur sandwich enthusiast. I'm half-assed wood stove installer, Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook, Ray Davis pronunciation advisor. Oh man, I was literally trying to think of a way to make that my title and didn't come up with anything good and just left it alone. So I'm glad that we were on the exact same wavelength once again there. There we go. And we're also joined by special guest Wes Wheat, who is holds the distinction of being the only other living person, aside from Jeremy Ruggles, who has been regularly confused to be my brother. That one works. Hello. And uh, Hello, other brother. Wes, you... Yeah. I was just trying to think of like what some of your other distinctions are. You were a radio station DJ at the same college station that Peter and I were at. I was uh, for about nine years, I think I did. Eight or nine years. Solid run. Yeah. Uh, I was Captain Zelato. I originally was on uh, 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. Wow. Then I was on uh, 3 to 5 on Mondays. And then I did, uh, what was my show called? Oh, the show never ends until 2 uh prog rock show yeah <laughs> uh did that did that saturday nights sunday morning i fondly remember that show and i briefly did a jazz show at the end of my tenure until uh listeners annoyed me and i decided to quit <laughs> <laughs> you know jazz fans and jazz critics can both be a real real bummer of a group of people sometimes i got called out for being unknowledgeable on uh Ahmad Jamal trivia and Mad Lib trivia. Was it was it Sean that uh, called and did this? Yeah, confession time, Sean. No, it wasn't Sean. Yeah. I wish it was Sean. <laughs> I wouldn't have quit if it was Sean. I would have put him on the air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should have put the other guy on the air too. Yeah. What do you do nowadays, Wes? Nowadays, I am a, a film student at DePaul in Chicago. Is there a record you wanted to talk about this week with us? Wait. What if we talked about the weather instead? We could talk about the weather, but I'd rather talk about a record. It's cold and rainy out. It is. It's cold and rainy, right, guys? You know where else it's cold and rainy all the time? Where, Jeremy? England. Mm. England. England. But what does England have England. to do the with this The United Kingdom. I don't know. I can't. It's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> well, why don't you uh, give the people what they want and tell us what record we're going to talk about? Hey. <laughs> I'm not hosting this app. Somebody else says it. Well, well, I'll do it. We're going to talk about the kinks, everybody. We're going to talk about give the people what they want. Oh, their 1981 hard rock album. Arena rock album. You got that right. <laughs> mm, finally trying to break into that American fan base by giving the people what they want. It already broke into the American fan base at this point, yeah, that's my true. friend. This came after Low Budget, their 1980 album. <laughs> you know what? I'm just, I couldn't decide where to bring this up, but I'm just going to go ahead and just put it out there right at the beginning. This is my least favorite record that we have done on the podcast to date. Wow. Now I feel bad. Yeah. I like almost everything we've ever done in here. I'm not that picky. And I'm not even going to say that this is a bad record. I just have not been able to get into late period kinks yet there are three songs that i genuinely like on this record and we are only going to hear one of them tonight <laughs> oh wow well that'll be interesting to see which ones stood out to you i was gonna say i'm excited to hear which ones he does like and yeah which ones, yeah foreshadowing well we'll get we'll get into it with 
the single that was released off this. This came out on Arista, the label. Do we remember who's behind the label Arista from a previous episode? I do. It, yeah, that, that producer that keeps getting mentioned. I know. We can't get away from Clive Davis. This was his label. Mm-hmm. And this was the Kinks' 19th studio album. It was their fourth album on Arista. Uh, we said it was released in 1981. That was in the States. It didn't come out in the UK until 1982. So they're definitely hitting that American market strong at this point. And we're going to go with the lead single in the US, which is the song Destroyer, which I would say is probably the best known song off this album. And I'm ready to do it if you guys are. Let's hear that song. Took her back to my place Feeling guilty, feeling scared Hidden cameras everywhere Stop! Hold on Stay in control on one of our very early episodes, the spirit episode, I mentioned that I'm a big fan of when bands, artists do a callback to previous songs of theirs. And of course, I'm sure that everyone caught on to the fact that that references two previous Kings hits, both all day and all the night, kind of uh, the riff from that. It's all based around that as well as of course, lyrically it references back Lola calls back Lola. Mm -hmm. See, I'm usually turned off when bands do that. So it's funny that we dislike and like this song for the same reason. I think it's clever. All right. That's fair. Again, I'm not going to make any attempt to like try and get people to agree with me on this. I want everyone to love this record. I just, I can't yet. Maybe someday, but not today. (laughs) Well, so that's, I guess it's worth asking. And and Wes, uh, Wes came to this episode i think i posted this in our i buy that for a dollar group on facebook and wes commented that he'd like to guest on this episode if we talked about this record and what is your guys background knowledge on the kinks like what albums do you like what albums do you know i went to high school and then hung out with some dudes in college that all really really liked the kinks and i just kind of absorbed their music third hand, but never really got that into them. But uh, I'm fairly familiar with like Village Green and Arthur and know all the like early hits. But honestly, I I knew this song that you just played, but I had no idea that it was the kinks that did it. Well, yeah, this is not your hipster friend's kinks. That's for sure. No, this, this is definitely a different formula. Uh, Sean, how about you? So I I love the Kinks. It's a band that I feel like I've enjoyed their music since the first time I heard it. However, one thing that I often do with records is I don't usually go out of my way to listen to records that I don't own. So there's a lot of Kinks material that I'm very under familiar with that other people I know like hold in high regard. 
Like I've really not listened to Arthur that much because I've never got a copy for myself. I've also really not listened to Muswell Hillbillies, and I know that's a, a big fan favorite for some mm-hmm. people. But let's see, I own uh, Lola vs. Power Man, something else, Live at Kelvin Hall, Kind of Kinks, Kink Size, and Kinks Kingdom. Okay. Those are the ones I'm most familiar with. So, mo- yeah, mostly all within their first 10 years or so. Yeah. You know, this is one of those bands that all of their, you know, like 60s and early 70s stuff is kind of shockingly difficult to find in the States for how popular this band is. And I'm sure you guys will get into the reasons behind that a little Mm -hmm. bit more later on. All right. Uh, Wes, how about you? Yeah, my story is basically the same as Sean's where I, I know a handful of albums fairly well. And then I just don't know a lot of the ones I'm most familiar with. Uh, I do have a copy of Arthur, Lola and Power Man, and then it's <laughs> it's the '80s stuff because my actual like introduction to the Kinks beyond like the the hits from the '60s and the early '70s was my dad was a part of a one of those CD clubs where they send you a CD every month, and he would use his credits with that to get CDs, and he got. By accident, two copies of Low Budget, the album preceding this one. Mm -hmm. And he gave me one of them. And I actually, like, I really liked it. And I've listened to that album probably the most of Kinks albums, which is probably, like, the least cool thing to say as a Kinks fan. Like, oh, yeah, my... (laughs) My most listened. <laughs> no, I think it's the most cool. But I stand by low budget. I think it's a solid album. Uh, it's kind of in the same vein as this. They kind of were playing around with disco and punk because those were the new things at the time, and they're all like almost in their forties at this point. So it's just interesting to hear, you know, like all the British invasion bands were basically done by this point. Like the Stones were still around, but the Beatles had broken up, and we're all John was dead and all that. So. It was interesting to hear a British invasion band like interpreting the music of the early 80s, late 70s and kind of bringing their own thing to it. Yeah. Well, especially because the Kinks, you know, as far as hard rock punk, they kind of, in some ways, invented it, mm-hmm. you know, with He Really Got Me and All Day and All the Night. Uh, of course, you probably know Dave Davis, uh, Ray's brother, the you know, brother of uh, singer-songwriter Ray Davis. Uh, Dave sla- famously slashed his uh, the speaker mm. on his amp to get that distorted sound, you know, which I'm not saying he invented distortion, but as far as how much distortion was on the guitar on a track, it, I'd say that was a definite increase with uh, those early hits by the Kinks. They kind of paved the way for a lot of that stuff. And then by this point, they're following trends instead of leading them. Right. Yeah, I'd always kind of wondered why they took such a weird hard rock arena rock turn. And then when I was listening back to this record, I kind of made that connection like, Oh yeah, they were really considered kind of like the front runners of punk and like a harder rock band in their early days. It's just like nowadays, so many decades removed, we just think of it as pop music and you don't recognize that harder edge that was more apparent at the time. Yeah. Yeah. definitely. And they went on like a 15 year, well, maybe not that long, but like a long stretch of like concept albums that were not mm. very punkish at all. Yeah, well, yeah, the the stuff that people hold up high and high esteem is very much not the rock and roll that we think of mm. of them starting. So my background with the Kinks, I had a lot of friends who talked about them in my early twenties and I was aware of a handful of hits, obviously the ones that everyone knows. I picked up a copy of something else on CD when I was probably about 23 or 24. Someone had told me that it, you know, it was in the same vein as like rubber soul or revolver as far as how important it was. And it didn't initially really land for me like Waterloo sunset. That song obviously stood out maybe a couple others. After a few years went by, I just happened to be driving somewhere on a trip and, had it in my car and listened really closely to the lyrics of the song Two Sisters on that. And, you know, realized that Ray Davis was writing about really unconventional things to be hearing in a rock song from the, or, you know, what would be in the rock pop vein in the mid to late 60s. And I started listening closer and closer to all of his lyrics, started checking out more albums and became absolutely obsessed you know checked out village green checked out arthur the ones that 
people always hold in high esteem. Uh, but of course, when I started looking at LPs again, going into the record stores and picking up records around 2006, 2007, I would say, the only things you could find were these late 70s and early 80s Kings albums. <laughs> and they were always super cheap, three, four, five bucks, especially at that point in time, you know, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. And so this is one that I picked up relatively early on and it clashed completely <laughs> with the rest of the stuff that I was listening to <laughs> as far as their catalog goes at the time. But I'd still throw it on from time to time. And after a few listens, I started to notice that there were still some really good songs in there that, you know, Ray Davis was still an incredible songwriter, even when going into territory that I wasn't really that interested in uh, musically. And so I kind of have a, this one was an early Kinks album for me. Some of the songs I have a fondness for. I'm not going to say that front to back, I love this album. Are you sure you don't mean back to front? <laughs> I guess, Wes, how do you feel being the one that wanted to I, talk about I this? think overall, like, I, I love this album, but there are definitely tracks on here that aren't as strong. I Like, Predictable's not that great. Back to front, I can't, I can barely remember. I think the, the chorus is a little bit catchy. The the songs that I do like on this album are enough to make me recommend it like highly, especially because you're not going to pay that much for it. Yeah, I bought a second copy recently because I left mine at my parents' house when I moved out to Chicago. So, it in Chicago records are too expensive, so it was seven dollars. But is I I felt perfectly fine paying another seven dollars. And I think my my other copy I paid about that um, in Kalamazoo. It's just. Chicago's record prices are ridiculous sometimes. Some every now and then you'll get a you'll get a good deal though. Yeah, I'd say that's uh just indicative of a vinyl prices going up because I think I paid 4 or 5 bucks for my copy at most. Well, let's talk a little about a, a little more about Destroyer, the song that we listened to. That was a hit. It reached number 3 on the Billboard Rock Charts and Minor hit on the Billboard Hot 100, it reached 85. I still feel like I hear it a lot of places, or I hear it referenced. A lot of people seem to know that song. Of bands with K.I. and a song called Destroyer, it is the better one. Because <laughs> Kiss sucks. <laughs> yes, on that we can agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> hey, do you guys want to know what my favorite song on this album is? What's your favorite song on this album, Sean? Predictable. Oh, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well... <laughs> well, how predictable. Yep. There's something for everybody on this yeah. record. There may just not be a lot of it depending well, on who you are. Well, that's Yeah, well, and that's the thing is, you know, I a lot of these later Kinks records and I haven't listened to all of them. They're not as strong as there's as their 60s stuff and early 70s stuff, but there I feel like there's songs for everyone on them. Someone's going to find something they like. Ray Davis is a diverse and strong enough songwriter that you're going to find something you like on his just about anything that he's ever put out. Something worth noting is just as far as the lyrical content of that song, there seems to be in just doing some research, people, there seems to be a debate about what exactly that song is about. You know, you see the narrator looking at his own self-destructive tendencies and some speculate that it's about drugs and drug use. And a lot of people think a lot of the different colors that he mentions in there are different drugs. But it's worth no noting that Ray Davis has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And he was diagnosed in 1973. And I guess his creativity is fueled by bouts of mania and hypomania. There's that line in that song, you're up, you're down. Um, and of course, people think with paranoia, people would might think like paranoid schizophrenic. And it's very important to distinguish the uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are two very different things. And uh, so this song could be about the double-edged sword of the debilitating effects and creative spurts that result from the mood swings associated with the, the disorder. And paranoia is a symptom of bipolar disorder. But I'd say overall, and maybe not just on that song, but a lot of the songs on this album have a feeling of overstimulation. Did any of you kind of pick up on that? Oh, yeah. It makes sense. Kind of like an overwhelming listen at times. I guess it was intended 
Originally, Jeremy mentioned there were a lot of concept albums, and this was meant to be a commentary on the American media. And Ray Davis originally intended to make videos for all the songs, but that fell through. I don't think there was quite the the funding or time to do that. Wasn't he involved with a film around this time period? Uh, the Are you thinking of the Waterloo Sunset? Could be. I remember just like when I was reading through their bio, it said that they had like taken a break from recording albums at one point for him to work on a movie and the rest of the band was pissed about it. Yeah, that might have been Waterloo Sunset. That was 85. So that would have been a few years after this. Oh, okay. Mm. I read it an interview where he was talking about the inspiration for this album. And he mentioned specifically American television and how there was some show he was watching that was just consumers and he was talking about how they're now just filming consumers and showing it to consumers and it's this crazy feedback loop and my brain was just like oh it's like social media he like saw the grossness of that cycle you know 40 years ahead of its time or something yeah yeah that does feel definitely like he's seeing things ahead of the curve it also seemed like maybe he was making an excuse for why this album is called this but then it actually is just him uh kind of giving the people what they want as they say yeah oh that's definitely something that he would do (laughs) that seems totally his mo oh the the movie that i was thinking of was uh Return to Waterloo. That was the name of it. I was mixing it up with Waterloo Sunset, but that might be the one. It was 84, it looks like. Okay. You know you know what band this this album kind of reminds me of that I hadn't really made the connection before today? Is The Replacements. <laughs> well, I was going to say that I feel like in a lot of ways, Ray Davis and Paul Westerberg, there's a lot of similarities yeah. between them as songwriters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there any particular like replacements era you're thinking? Well, I mean, this record came out the same year as the first replacements record. So I kind of wonder how much of an influence there might've been there, but I don't know, just in the way that the replacements can be a little abrasive for people at first with that, like heavy eighties production. And then once you actually listen to the songwriting, there's some really brilliant stuff kind of buried in these sometimes almost hair metal esque productions you know yeah um and i feel that same way about later kinks obviously the replacements records are much better than most of the later period kinks records but there's a lot of comparisons that can be drawn between the two bands i think yeah i mean there's a. I remember being kind of put off when i started listening to the the replacements by some of the more like butt rock (laughs) sounding songs totally on their (laughs) records like one one dose of thunder i think on uh, tim Mm -hmm. and uh, but you know, yeah. And there's like shredding and eighties production, but yeah, you, you see through that, you get over it and you're like, Hey, there's some really excellent songs here with some thoughtful lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to actually say that, uh, I was going to make that comparison that I, I feel like there's a lot of the qualities in both Ray Davis and Paul Westerberg as songwriters are there's similarities that I appreciate. Once again, me and Peter just on that same wavelength. And, you know, I remembered something else. The real turning point for me deciding that I really wanted to buy more Kinks records and get into them more was when I was living with this guy, Peter Cook, who we were talking about music one day. Surprise, surprise. And you made a comment along the lines of uh, that even though you love the Beatles and you wouldn't necessarily say that the Kinks were a better band. Your favorite Kink songs were more important to you than your favorite Beatles songs. Oh yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's a big statement from Peter. Uh, I definitely need to pay more attention to this group that I've always liked their music, but not really dug in anymore. So yeah, I'd forgotten about that entirely until just recently. Well, I, I don't even necessarily remember making that comment. The tables have turned, but <laughs> ten, ten, it was about, probably about 10 years ago, but I stand by it. Yeah, I would say that, I, and I've been listening to the Beatles again lately, and yeah, like song for song, I, they're still one of the nearest and dearest to my heart. But yeah, as far as like the strongest and my favorite Kink songs, yeah, th- those are more important to me than even the best Beatles songs. Now, of course, yeah, they were, uh, the kinks were contemporaries of the Beatles. They formed in Muswell Hill, North London, 1964. 
and they were part of the British invasion alongside the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who. But their success in America was hampered by a union ban by the American Federation of Musicians. And I found a quote from Ray Davis that said that their ban from 1965 to 1969, where they did not perform in the, in the United States, it was a mixture of bad agency, bad management, bad luck, and bad behavior. I guess one of the key incidents was on, they were on Dick Clark's Where the Action Is, and one of the people working for the TV network accused them of being late and then jumped right from that to a bunch of anti-British comments and slander, you know, saying he was going to bury them, just kind of jump the gun. You're late and I'm going <laughs> to bury you. And so the punches were thrown. They were some rowdy youngsters, the kinks. And, uh, that, yeah, the, they were, the ban prevented them from performing in the United States from 1965 to 1969, which were key years, both in, you know, the kinks catalog and, the development of Ray Davis songwriting, as well as just in music and music history. <laughs> a yeah. lot happens in those years. Yep. And it's really interesting, like how far reaching the ripple effect was from that. I remember first hearing about that piece of trivia when I first started spending more time at record shows and hearing some of the older dealers talking about that's the big reason why you don't find Kinks records as much because, you know, during a very important period of their career there there wasn't really a lot of u.s pressing happening of their music because they literally couldn't tour and support so there was not as much demand in the states as there you know should have been and almost definitely would have been if they could have toured here yeah yeah long lasting effects i learned that from sean there you go <laughs> uh there's a pivotal moment for um ray davis's songwriting and some of what I've read is said a lot of the reason like he wrote the albums he did during that period was because like because it was very British like the music they made was because they couldn't tour the U.S. So he kind of mm -hmm. turned inward because a lot of what I've been what I've read about Ray Davis is he's obsessed with America and American like pop culture and hence this album hence his most recent album Americana. Mm -hmm. So that's a great one. He kind of turned his eye to his own country because he couldn't tour the country he was obsessed with. And so we might not have gotten a lot of the like really very British Kings albums if they had been able to tour the U S right. And I was reading, that's a big reason why they're much less influenced by U S soul and blues. A lot of their contemporary British invasion groups, they were looking, you know, to the, their homeland a little more for musical and conceptual inspiration. So yeah, I mean, who, who knows, how much or how little that affected their career and their output and, and all that. But it's, it's interesting to theorize on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They started pulling from like music hall and Baroque arrangements and instrumentation, like the harpsichord and the Mellotron put a lot of horns in their music. It was and, and Ray Davis, of course, abandoned any attempt to Americanize his accent at that point, which was, you know, a key feature for a lot of the other groups of the, British invasion, they sounded American. Well, by the late 70s and the early 80s, they were obviously, they were now making records for Clive Davis on Arista, and they focused on the American market, and we get this arena rock phase, and it gave them late career popularity in the U.S. Now, it's easy to think of them as being really old by this point, but Ray was only 37 and Dave was 34, which is like the same age Jeff Tweedy was when Wilco put out A Ghost is Born. So in that context, they they were really young when they first hit. Uh, Ray was 20 and Dave was 17 when they recorded You Really Got Me. Hmm. So, yeah. So we're seeing Dave is kind of obsessed with but critical of sen the sensationalism that he saw in the media in America. And like kind of the overall theme, especially on the title track, which Wes had suggested as one. And I'm just not, it's not my personal favorite, the give the people what they want song. For me, Davis is at his best when writing about common people and common struggles. And that is in perfect form on the next song that I'd like to play. Yo-Yo. Ooh, this is the best one. IMHO. Yeah. This is uh, the main reason Wes wanted to do this album, correct? It's one of my favorite songs and it might be my favorite Kinks song. Yeah, I would put it up there. I would put it 
in my top 10 Ray Davis songs. So let's check it out. There are many different people living double lives. One for the office and one that they take home to their wife. He sits in the armchair, watches Channel 4, with his brains not expected home for an hour or more. He's still drifting to and fro. Like a yo yo. The wife is in the kitchen fixing her old man's tea. She's thinking to herself, he's not the man that married me. Even laugh alone, she's just sitting by the telephone like a yo yo. I don't like that song either. It might be your guys' favorite, but I, I I can't get into it. Now, here's the things that I do like about it. I think that's a really good example of how good Ray Davis is at having a song kind of subtly unfold as it goes along and become more interesting as it goes. Yeah. I think that song keeps getting better the farther you get into it, which is kind of cool. But I don't know. There's just too many elements that are just fully not my thing. I can't really get into that song. When I was listening to this album, the first two tracks I thought were okay, and then I really liked Killer's Eyes and Predictable, and then... Killer's Eyes is really good. Yeah. And then added up Destroyer and Yo-Yo. I was like, all three of these songs suck. I don't know if I can get through the rest of this album. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) But I'm not saying I'm right on that. Again, I just want to be very clear here. Well, once again, I'm glad that there were some songs that you did like on it, and... Wes, go, don't let that be where we leave this song. Tell us what you like oh, about no. this song. Oh, no. Yeah. Yo-Yo, the first copy of this I bought, had a hype sticker on it. And the, the hype sticker said, featuring the singles Destroyer and Yo-Yo. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. Then I listened to it. No. <laughs> then I listened to it. I'm like, why was Yo-Yo not a hit? Because like it's better than Destroyer. And like I think Destroyer is a fine song. But Yo-Yo, it's it's back to, like, Peter, you're talking about um, Two Sisters from something else. Yeah. And I feel like these songs are kind of, in my mind, they're kind of connected. Like, I imagine, like, the woman who is disconnected from her husband is very similar to the, the married sister in Two Sisters and could even be the same person. You know, the same kind of malaise about... yeah being in a loveless marriage and not happy with your place in life. And I just think the lyrics of the song are really, really good about just like, uh, the more I listen to it, the more things pop out at me. And I, I like the line, uh, you needed me when you were crying. Now that you're laughing, I'm the last thing on your mind. I just think that's a really striking lyric and just the way it's weird. Cause like the song starts talking about individuals and then it becomes more, it sounds more like it's about Ray Davies. Yeah. I was going to mention the third person to first person shift in narrative. Yeah. And it's a subtle shift. Cause you don't like, I've listened to that song many, many times. And it was only really when listening for the podcast. Cause I've listened to this album a lot in the last few weeks since we set all this up. And 
I started being like, oh, he shifts uh, perspective like midway through the song. And and I like the way it, but like Sean said, it gets better and better as it goes on. And so I guess if, for me, since I like it from the beginning, it just gets better and better into like a better, like a, a good song. For Sean, I guess it's not the case, but you know, not every album's for everybody. And I'm, I'm not going to begrudge Sean uh, his taste. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I do like the lyrics on it too. I think lyrically it is really interesting and i agree that they're at their best when they are writing about you know the the common people like pulp i think they kind of (laughs) yeah yeah like pulp i was wondering when the pulp joke would drop (laughs) it's gonna come eventually with me (laughs) yeah um but i i think they have a, a similar perspective to that to the bruce springsteen perspective which is kind of using that common perspective but looking to elevate it instead of exploit it mm-hmm. yeah reminded me a little bit lyrically of like jonathan richman i guess the way he yeah, took kind that. of a silly yeah. metaphor of a yo-yo and turned it into like a pretty deep interesting uh, idea yeah and there's and just the way he sang a little bit too there's kind of that like punky yeah. edge to it yeah and at this you know at this point Jonathan Richmond would have been releasing stuff, so who knows who's re- influencing who? Yeah, and um, there's a really good YouTube video um, where they were playing Rock Ballast, and uh, if you just type Kinks Yo-Yo Live, it's like the first thing that comes up, and it's a good performance. You get a good uh, solo from Dave, and Ray's having a blast on stage. Yeah, I would argue his solo on that is better than on the album. Yeah, I would agree with that. Dave solo. Well... Yeah, I agree. Uh, this th- that one definitely. I don't even know if I really first noticed this song when I bought the album, and then one day it just occurred to me what a phenomenal song it was. I, yeah, I feel like it, it starts subtly and then just builds and builds. Yeah, I love it. We want to talk a little bit about who the Kinks are on this record. It's it's not the same as all these like jazz and uh, funk records with you know a lot of different. And we've done a lot of albums with a lot of studio musicians playing on them and that's not the case here we of course have ray davis on lead vocals rhythm guitar synth and piano his brother dave davis on lead guitar backing vocals there's there are no dave songs on this album and he you know dave does occasionally he was not happy about that <laughs> i imagine i watched not. uh i watched a bit of the uh, biography channel video on them on uh, youtube I just skipped to the part that talks about the late 70s and the 80s, and Dave was not happy that he didn't get to write songs. Yeah. The more I saw of like the two of them in interviews and stuff, it felt like they were their generation's Gallagher brothers. But Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, their, their spiteful sibling rivalry it was just precedes them. Proto-Oasis, as they say. <laughs> Much like, uh, oh, who is, were you saying Ramsey Lewis the other? No. Oh no, it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. Sorry, I've been listening to a lot of your. There's a we, joke. We appreciates with, that about you. <laughs> I do want to clarify something about that Earth, Wind, and Fire. The What's the Story, Morning Glory. You can cut this out, but uh, they probably got the phrase from the musical Bye Bye Birdie because it's uh, prominently featured in one of the songs. The Tell the Story, Morning Glory. Uh, yeah, What's the line. Story, Morning Glory. Yeah, but let's pretend they got it from Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Trevor had. Uh, proposed that theory which i thought was pretty funny as a listener i thought it was funny too so oh good i'm glad that we're getting the laughs, <laughs> glad we're giving the people what they want yeah Woo, bring it back so of course uh, yeah we have original kinks drum drummer mick avery playing on here we do not have the original bassist peter quaif we're several bassists removed from him at this point we have jim rodford he'd been with the kinks since 78 at this point he had played with Argent, prior to that, he's a hey. cousin of Rod Argent. Yeah. <laughs> of course, from the zombies. He, I guess uh, Jim Rodford later played in some zombies reunions. And on keyboards, we have Ian Gibbons. He had been with the Kingston 79 at this point. And he also played in Dr. Feelgood. He played with Susie Quattro and Randy California from Spirit. There are a few people that he's played with. And one more person on this record to mention on guest vocals on four songs. We have Chrissy Hind. 
It's true. Oh, yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. She and Ray were in a relationship at the time, and they ended up having a daughter in 83, which I did not realize that Chrissy Hind and Ray Davis had a daughter together. I was unaware. So it's news to me. Yeah, and I'd like to play a song that she is prominently featured on. You can hear her very well on Add It Up. Sean's not going to have a good time. I know. We're not giving, That's the, fine. Not giving the hard bargain what <laughs> he wants. I'm just glad Jeremy isn't left out with me and the hater. He, he's not the only one. Sometimes other people dislike things too. It's not just Jeremy. <laughs> I don't hate this album. Well, I'm, I'm saying you've hated more albums than either of us so far. Wow. It's, it's not right? that many. <laughs> I know. It's going to throw me under the bus, huh? <laughs> Actually, have you disliked any records we've done other than the 10cc one? I don't think there's been an album we've done that I've wholly disliked like that one, no. Okay. There's like albums where I'm like spotty on, but. Yeah. All right, so we added it up and it was one. <laughs> Let's add it up again. All right, well, Jeremy and I are one for one now. Peter, are there, are there any records we've done that you didn't like? Peter hates Earth, Wind, and Fire. No. He just is too polite to say it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, was, that was atrocious, but everything else I've. Doug. He didn't want to insult the guest. <laughs> Sean's fine with it. <laughs> All right. Now, Jeremy and I have to work extra hard to find a record that Peter doesn't like. Yeah. Why don't you bring a Pearl Jam album? <laughs> Gross. No way. <laughs> fucking love billy idol boys <laughs> that was no. billy idol covering the violent femmes right yeah yeah and yeah here guitar guy yeah you know in all honesty though i feel like billy idol had to have been taken like a fair amount of uh, inspiration from this era of kinks and also they totally would have been marketed to like the exact same audience in the mid 80s what, what year did the kinks have their big mtv hit with uh come dancing I think that was 83. 83. Okay. Well, you want to know what came out in 83? Rebel Yell. <laughs> yeah. And and it's funny because that was the Kinks kind of returning to that more traditional British sound. That was them going away from this rock and roll. You know? Right. And, you know, it's really interesting how people who were the exact right age when that came out know that era of kinks better than the early stuff i have met people like that before i don't know if you guys have ever encountered that my dad yeah only had uh this era of kinks records in his collection yeah i, I remember talking with my uncle about music at one point and someone mentioned the kinks he's like oh what was that one kink song i really liked and i was naming off all the obvious hits you know like lola and all day and all the night he's like no no not that songs uh Come dancing. Like, what <laughs> fucking song is that? I like come dancing. <laughs> I 
yeah i played i was like this isn't bad yeah. but like why is this the only kink song that someone would know like it just kind of blew my mind but you know looking at their career trajectory and everything it, it makes sense now yeah that one i worked at lowe's for a decade and heard that song every single day oh wow mm. and and it was you know what the thing is you'd think that you hear a song that much that you'd hate it but it was like my one opportunity to hear Ray Davis every day working yeah. in retail. So I, I actually have a fondness for it because of that association. Yeah. Actually Wes, when we were talking about what songs to feature, he suggested this one because of it sounding new wave, it kind of being the most new wave song on the record. I actually thought it sounded a little clash, a little bit like the clash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lyrically, it seems to be about the corruption of money. Mm. Of course, you know, here's the corruption of money on a huge major label album. This is where I was going to sort of point out the similarity between uh, Ray Davis and Paul Westerberg. Not that Westerberg was ever commercially as big as the Kinks, but celebrating working class roots, having that vibe, but being a successful rock star. I feel like that's a trope to the classic rock song about money corrupting by a rich famous band yeah <laughs> well i mean they would know firsthand right yeah the, true i can't write a song about how money corrupts i don't have any <laughs> true yeah they're writing from experience well one song that i hope is not written from experience is the one that we're not going to feature but we can't not talk about it and that's art lover well who wants to take that one? Well, Peter. <laughs> it's a weird one. <laughs> uh, it's not about what it sounds like, despite the fact that Robert Criscow says it in every yeah. review I've heard of the album says. It's not a song about a pedophile. It is a song about a father who's gone through a divorce and his and is going incognito to the park to watch his own daughter play, or yeah, his daughter, because he can't because he lost custody. And yeah. it's mm-hmm. just the way it's written yeah. and performed is supposed to make you think it's about a pedophile but he does say at the very beginning of the song he's not a flasher in a raincoat he's not a dirty old man yeah yeah it's just it's definitely a strange choice to a strange way of presenting the song in that topic and it yeah so it is written from experience because he had gone through a divorce a few years before this and did lose custody of i think he had two daughters that he lost custody of and was not allowed to see at one point. So it's actually from his perspective, it's a very sad song, but I definitely for years before I found out the real meaning behind it was always very, what the fuck when I listened to this album. Yeah. That was my initial reaction to it too. I think I had to look it up to, to find out like, what's the, is this song actually about what I think it's about? And then I, I found that it, it was not, but a lot of, a lot of people think it is even uh despite the fact it's been clarified. But that doesn't surprise me. It it does very much sound like a song about a pedophile from the perspective of one. Yeah. yeah, alarmingly so. So it's worth mentioning that. If anyone picking this up for cheap, which you will see this cheap, just be aware that on side, the middle of side two, there's a very strange song, Art Lover. Well, let's, uh, let's head towards the exit here. The Kinks were around until 1996. They broke up then. I think that the uh, Davis brothers just, I'm surprised they they could stand each other that long, honestly, with how uh, notorious their relationship is. Yeah, they were a band for like 30-some years, and, you know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, Yeah, Oasis lasted like six or something. Three albums, I think, yeah. And they still don't talk to each other now that they're not in a band. Yeah, and I guess the Davis brothers have recently, as of 2018, they've reunited. And I, I found a quote from Ray Davis that is pretty fitting and classic. Uh, you know, when people said, "Are oh, the Kinks getting back together?" Ray said, "The word together is misleading. We were never together, but we're back to our dysfunction again," which is classic Ray cynicism. And of course, uh, the bulk of this record is in that cynical tone. I don't know if anyone else picked up on that. Yeah, and then there's one song that is not at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they also, they, they reunited again before uh, that when they both had health problems. I want to say is some point in the 90s, or maybe it was the early 2000s, uh, Ray had, yeah, but it was after they broke up. Ray moved to New Orleans, and he got into an altercation with a mugger and got shot in the leg. And then shortly after that, yeah, 2004, 
Dave had a stroke and they were both living together for a while while they were recovering from their various ailments. Yeah, I remember that. There was a lot of speculation of the band reuniting then. I think that was like 2006 or 2007. Well, they they have uh, announced that they have more or less reunited at this point, right? They've been working yeah. on a new record since 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I, of course, I'm guessing that uh, current world circumstances may <laughs> put that back a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe they're just writing some like life-changing bangers in their house right now, and we're all about to be just shocked and awed at how good the the 2021 Kinks album is going to be. Ray can still write a good song. That Americana album that Wes mentioned is pretty good uh, back to front <laughs> to play into one of the songs. Again, I stole Wes's joke. It's okay. It's not as good <laughs> the second time. <laughs> Sean, I want to circle back to which which were the songs you liked on the album? You said there were three songs you liked, and the rest of it was not your thing. So you said Killer's Eyes. Yeah, Killer's Eyes, Unpredictable, I really liked. And the other song I really like is the song Better Things that you guys are going to play. Okay. Uh, kill, uh, Killer's Eyes. I was I was listening to this walking home from work the other day, and I noticed the drum sound on that was reminding me of uh, Peter Gabriel's Intruder. Ooh, interesting. It's just kind of the same rhythm and, and the way it sounds. It's kind of got that... Uh, like gated sound to it, which I thought was right. And it is possible that they lifted it from that. They, they've been known to lift from, uh, other bands on their previous album to this one, low budget. I cannot remember which song it is. They wholesale lift the, uh, satisfaction riff. Let's just like straight up. And it's, and, <laughs> and I, I double checked that Peter Gabriel album came out in 1980. So they could have very well been like, we're just going to take that little drum bit. And they're kind of similar songs, taking on kind of this uh, eerie thing. You know, Intruders about someone breaking into people's homes and Killer's Eyes is about a killer who has celebrity status because I mean, that's another one of his like American mm-hmm. criticisms is the way we like kind of almost glorify our, our criminals. You know, like people like Charles Manson are, you know, basically celebrities. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a, a running theme through this album. And of course, yeah, he likes to put himself you know into the eyes of interesting characters you you never know what you're going to get the perspective you're going to get in a ray davis song but it usually is some larger commentary than you know just that yeah and i think they were probably the most literate of the like uh british invasion bands yeah like the who were were not literate uh the stones not literate the beatles maybe a little bit but not not particularly oh yeah and i don't mean that in like they, they couldn't read or write i just mean they they weren't as much about like character and highbrow references and and the like yeah well the, yeah the vocabulary that ray utilizes is definitely unconventional for rock and roll i've gone quiet <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i heard some laughing i don't know if we lost everyone i'm here i laughed a little because i was i just had an image of keith richards like kind of sitting over a book and looking at it confused <laughs> because he like can't read. I can't snort this. <laughs> I've uh, I've read Life, Keith Richards' book. Um of course I'm sure that to some extent that was ghost written or uh mm-hmm. re- you know as recalled to so and so, but it was a good read. It was an interesting read. I'm not even like I guess as far as the, uh, I didn't even plan to do this, but if I had to rate, if I was rating from favorite to least favorite, as far as the four, the big four of the British invasion, it would probably be, oh, it'd be hard. That'd be a tough one. It might depend on the day, but I don't know. It might be Beatles, Kinks, Who, Stones, but I still really love the Stones. Like I've come to like them more and more, especially. I don't. I don't know if all of you want to go through that. <laughs> That's that might Stones, be Kinks, Who's Beatles. So bold. That'd bold be yours, choice. Jeremy. Sean. Yeah. Uh, mm, probably Stones, and then Kinks and Beatles interchange interchangeable with Who at the end. I'm gonna be okay. So, uh, my favorite band when I was in high school was the Who. So they're probably number two because the Beatles are still the Beatles, and I can't go full Jeremy and go completely 
<laughs> throwing them at the bottom. And they were very important to me growing up. My first CD was the Beatles 1 compilation that came out in, uh, let's say, 1999. Or maybe it was early 2000s. But yeah, because I, I was in elementary school when it came out. So I'd probably go Beatles who kink stones. But the kinks could easily move up the yeah. more I, I dig into the albums that I haven't listened to. Yeah, I feel like if I'd had equal access to uh, kinks and Beatles songs, I probably would a little more easily say I like the kinks more. Personally, I'm just glad that we're leaving Led Zeppelin and Eric Clapton off of this list entirely. <laughs> well, they're not British Invasion bands. They came like 10 years later. Okay. But also, yeah, they don't belong on this list. <laughs> I feel like I often hear Led Zeppelin counted as like one of the British Invasion bands, though. I could be wrong on that. No, you don't. Nobody nobody does that. They didn't come around until 72. All right, that's fine. I didn't know there was specific time constraints for British Invasion. Zeppelin were 69 when their first album dropped. There was a long-standing rumor that Jimmy Page had played the guitar solo on the Kinks, You Really Got Me, but it's not true. It's Dave. It's Dave Davis Mm. on there. One thing I would like to address, and we kind of touched on it a little bit. Before we get out of here, we're going to get to better things. But (laughs) I think for me, one of the really big things is just uh, Ray Davis writing songs from the perspective of women at a time when really no one else was doing that, especially male singer songwriters, rock, rock writers. And yeah, like on this album, we didn't even talk about it. There's a song called a little bit of abuse that addresses domestic abuse, which is not something you hear about in rock and roll in 1981, which was apparently inspired by, um, a sister of, uh, Ray and Dave's that was being abused by her husband. At least that's what yeah. I, I was. I read a little bit about. Yeah, he wrote a lot about his sisters. That I don't think it's about Rosie, but Rosie was another one of their sisters, and he had a song about her on one of their early albums. Just real, yeah, really unique perspectives that I don't really feel like a lot of other men were writing about at the time. Yeah, and very sympathetically, like you know, a lot of rock bands. I mean, even today, don't sing about women in a particularly healthy or respectful way. And I think, for the most part, the kinks do. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm ready to leave on a note of optimism with better things. Of course, always uh, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. And the link is in the show notes as well. Any of y'all got anything else or anything you want to say about it? We should talk about better things because for me, this we talked about all that cynicism and this leaves things on a note of optimism, which Jeremy, before we, I'll, I'll just get to it. I'll say it for you, Jeremy. You can say your piece more. But Jeremy, before, uh, when we were first setting up, said that for him, it it feels false because of all the cynicism that comes before it. It doesn't feel earnest, which I've never had that feeling when listening to this. I, I feel like it's what Ray... Ray doesn't want to leave you in that cynicism that he used to address a lot of problems in society. He doesn't want to leave you feeling that down like that. So, I mean, to me, it, it's, it's, it's real, but tell us how you feel, Jeremy. I think you should have stick to the gambit, you know, <laughs> just, just stuck with it. Not tried to tack it on at the end. Just make a Nebraska. Every song is a bummer. Yeah. Don't like, <laughs> Well, I don't know. To me, it feels like movies where like things are going bad or like a scary movie where everyone's dying and then at the end, like everything turns out good. And it's like, no, that's... Give the people what they like want. weird Hollywood. <laughs> oh, it's like, like the... Want to keep the customers happy kind of vibe that I don't like. <laughs> yeah. The Tony Scott ending of True Romance versus the original Quentin Tarantino version which no one knows what i'm talking about i guess my um my counter to that would be i don't think better things is an uncynical song i think because it's not saying things are going to be better it's saying i hope things will be better and i hope like i think even people who have a more pessimistic worldview don't want the world to be worse they want things to be better they just realize that they aren't currently and so i think you know, he's saying, I want things to be better, but they aren't necessarily. I hope, yeah, I hope tomorrow brings you better things. Because what's the point of bringing up all the shitty stuff in the world if you don't have some sort of hope to change it? Like, that was a criticism Bob Dylan got a lot. was like, you write all these protest songs, but you don't offer any solutions. It's like, that's not my job. <laughs> you know, 
But at least, you know... I'm starting the conversation. Ray is trying to say... Getting it out there. Yeah, things suck right now. But if we all do our part and try to make things better, maybe they will be. And I don't know, right now, with the way things are going, I can kind of get behind that message. Shit sucks. But let's... (laughs) But let's, uh... Let's try not to make shit suck in the future. It's very fitting. Hell yeah. Yeah. I feel it's very apt for the way the world is right now to end on this one. So... Real quick, I have not made the Spotify playlist in advance for this episode, but I've been making a list of okay. artists that I will likely include on there. If you guys want to hear the the list I've got real quick and maybe add a few. Yeah, let's do that. So I was thinking uh, The Jam has some similarities to this group. The Jam, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Uh, I don't have songs in mind yet. I just like just the band in general. Um, and some of the records you can still find pretty cheap, can especially the, the later stuff. Yeah, some of the later stuff you can still find cheap. Okay. I think Hall & Oates might have a little bit of similarities here that people could get into. The Pretenders, like we mentioned, Billy Idol, Blondie, another one. Mm-hmm. A really cool power pop group that I don't often hear get talked about is a band called The Sports. They had a minor hit with a song called Don't Throw Stones. Okay. I'm not sure I'm familiar with them. Yeah. Well, I, that's that's a band I've kind of had on the back burner if I want to do an episode on them at some point. But I think there's some similarities to this record. Uh, Peter Gabriel, like we mentioned. Cindy Lauper, I think, is a really good one. Okay. Another group that is extremely cheap but has some pretty good songs, The Knack. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's... I, sometimes when I would talk about the kinks, people would be say, yeah, my Sharona. I'm like, no, no, no that's the knack. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I love the, uh, the first knack record, get the knack. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's got some great power pop on it. Yeah. And then the, the last thing I put on the list, another power pop guy that I think is pretty cool. Nick Gilder. Nick Gilder. I've heard of him. I haven't listened to him though. I see his stuff around. I was going to say, I was thinking you could pop some Marshall Crenshaw on there. Ooh, that's a good there's one. There's a, a I would do that. There's a track by Gold Earring that I think would fit on there called Cessoir, uh, Kill Me. It's from their album Switch. Okay, yeah, Golden Earring had a, a similar thing where they they started really early on, but the early records are almost impossible to find in the U.S. And by the time they made it here, they were transitioning into a hard rock band. So that that is a yeah a yeah. very good parallel to this. Yeah, and the song kind of hits the same kind of notes as like uh, they give the people what they want. Uh, track which i know peter's not the biggest fan of and john didn't like but i didn't like it either i figured (laughs) (laughs) wow i'm more of a side two guy with this record side two is where it's at for me when i don't have time to listen to the whole album i just put side two on because side one's all right but it's not side two yeah are you gonna have any i'd buy that alumni ian matthews perhaps like the late power pop oh yeah his like later his later stuff would totally work, yeah. Shake it up, or shake it, baby. The other two things, the other things I was thinking about was, you know, there's some of those disco funk records that were crossing over into hard rock, like we talked about Donna Summer doing that around this time period, and then uh, Melba Moore has a really cool rock crossover record from, I think, like, 85 that we could use something from. Nice. I'm trying to think of. Yeah, some of that stuff might work. I think we got a pretty good list to give the people what they want. Um, yep. Before we get out of here, we're run that into the ground before this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, we should probably get out of here. But Wes, real quick, you haven't talked about your podcast. Yeah, I have a podcast that is currently on indefinite hiatus, but there are thirteen episodes you can listen to. It is called Clock Blocked. It is uh, a podcast about time travel media, uh, mostly movies, but sometimes episodes of television shows. You can find it on, uh, I think, everywhere you can find podcasts. I think we finally got on Apple Music, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, or maybe we're not on Apple. But you can find us on Spotify or Stitcher, any of those. It's called Clock Blocked, again. I also I recorded an EP like three years ago under the name Captain Gelato and the Supersonic Cosmonauts. If you want to listen to that, that's out there. It's free on uh, Bandcamp. So Excellent. Yeah, I checked out the Flight of the Navigator episode of clock blocked and i i didn't realize i was driving to work and i didn't realize that there was also a, you talk about quantum leap episodes and suddenly i was like wait how did how did i get from flight uh, of the yes. navigator to quantum leap <laughs> <laughs> it was very abrupt but um i really enjoyed the episode uh yes the quantum leap corner spelled with the q u 
Yeah, no, it was really fun. I, that was a, a movie I saw as a child and loved. So I know that you didn't feel the same about it, but watching it as an adult, I'm sure it isn't the same experience. Yeah, we that's one of our, our least focused episodes. We got off topic a lot on that one, but uh, we had fun. Yeah, that, those, those are my things. I don't yeah. want you to follow me on Twitter because I don't tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for joining us, adding to the discussion on this record. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, if if I come back, hopefully I won't be with an album Sean hates. <laughs> hopefully Peter will hate the next album. <laughs> I'm just glad I had you, Wes. I needed some backup, so I appreciate it about you. So, but anyway, uh, well, yeah, I think that's it for I'd buy that for a dollar. We're gonna go out on better things. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm also Sean Hartman brother (laughs) but maybe jeremy ruggles who knows who is who i'm the thing from john carpenter's the thing Bitter as the ones behind you Be enough to 